All right, let's take our Bibles and once again turn to 2 Corinthians. For those of you who are guests, we seek to cover a book a year in the morning service. We try to do so in our evening service. For those of you who are not having your fellowships tonight, there will be on-site preaching here, I believe. And you've gotten information about that, I know. And you're welcome to join here this evening uh, for that opportunity. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Lord, help us to be faithful hearers. And by your grace, as a result of what we learn throughout the second portion of this letter from Paul to the Corinthians, faithful doers by your grace as well. There really is nothing that's about performance in your church because everything that is good and virtuous is underpinned by your grace. Certainly need to understand that, Lord, as we head into these two chapters of this second portion of this second letter. So help us to to know your will, to discern it, and then to do it, so that we might understand the blessing that James speaks of in James one twenty five. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen going to ask you a rhetorical question to begin this morning. I trust it's uh, rhetorical. What's invaluable to you? Um, my sons have been going out and getting engagement rings for their fiancés, and they have been, you know, walking with me through the process for some reason. I didn't ask to be part of that process. Um, I've joined them. And they always ask me, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I'm always going to say what? I think it's great. In those situations, it's like totally not wise to truly give your opinion, right? <laughs> right? So like if you, if you like it and she likes it, what difference does it make? It's great, right? So I'm watching them and, and, and then it gets to this point where, wow, the, you know, the rings they're picking out, I'm thinking, Wow. Let's not show that to mom. I mean, they, they, not for the reason you just laughed about. But, you know, mom's ring's just not as big. You know what I mean? So, you know, back in 1990 when I purchased her ring, you know, it was all I could do to scrape two nickels together to get her what I got her. And eventually she comes across the pictures and then the, the, the eyewitness of the rocks that their girls got. And, um, and immediately I find myself flubbering apologies for, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I, I mean, I don't know what to say. And, and then her, her natural response is what? I wouldn't trade this for the world, right? I was actually asked this week, Rick, if I have a button that I push on the pulpit. 
that nudges you to say amen? That really happened. I said, no, the Holy Spirit's his button, and he's just... You know, that, my wife would say that's an invaluable gift to her, and I appreciate that. Um, you may have a jersey of a sports team that you played for, that you've even had framed, and that's iconic to you, and it may be hanging in your man cave, and uh, maybe you're holding on to that to hand down to, to your son or daughter. You could have an award um, that's in plaque form that's positioned someplace in your home, your home office, or your work office that um, you don't ever want to be you want to be found putting that in a box and shoved into a closet and left there. You, you would never want to not be mindful of its, of its value to you. Um, my wife's wedding dress is boxed. And uh, her mom's wedding dress was given to her, and it's boxed. And, and uh, you may have been a granddaughter that thought, wow, it's an invaluable opportunity to wear your grandmother or your great-grandmother's dress, and you have it fitted for your special day. And those are invaluable moments to you. I have, in my former office back in the shepherd's room on top of President James A. Garfield's pulpit that he preached from when he was a Methodist pastor here in town, uh, a second edition of the Great Bible. Many of you know that. I've spoken of it here. And uh, you can actually get online and, and do some research of historic books and you can find its value. Someone asked me if I was ever going to sell that Bible and take advantage of its value. And my answer is what? No, it's invaluable to me. I found it uh, the morning my uncle, my dad's brother passed away in his home. And uh, I never had one thought about selling that volume of the second edition of the Great Bible from 1541. As a matter of fact, uh, Jack Lego, many of you know him. Uh, he desired to uh, craft for me uh, a particular glass that would protect it from lighting and that, that glass case is over top of that Bible and um, it's, it's invaluable. There's lots of things that we would label as invaluable uh, for sure. You can take something of immeasurable value to you and still find a value for it somewhere. Like my wife's ring, I have... I have its valuation, what it would be insured for if it was lost, right? Um, my sons have those. You could post anything on various platforms in the world and put it up for sale and someone might pay something or would pay something for that item. Is there a resource though, a gift, a most precious commodity that you have been gifted upon which there is no human value that could ever be placed upon it? Is there a favor that's been bestowed upon you that's truly immeasurable in its worth? Let's go back to the ring jersey award plaque wedding dress from your great-grandmother or Bible in my office. Most likely those invaluable items which can find value in this world were given to you because you found favor with someone who gifted you with that special treasure. 
What about being gifted with something that truly can't be valued by man and you were still gifted while you didn't do anything to earn it? As a matter of fact, you were gifted the invaluable resource even though your life was a complete mess to the one who gifted you. I've literally been in counseling rooms with storylines that seem only to play out in movies as a pastor over a few years. A wealthy uncle dies. The uncle's lawyer is present for the reading of the will. The family shows up to be informed what part of their rich uncle's treasure will be theirs. And the wayward niece shows up. She's the black sheep of the whole family. Everyone wonders why she even shows up. Surely there's nothing their proper uncle would leave to this improper mess of a life. And yet the lawyer reads the will, and it's quite short. He's bequeathed everything to the wayward niece and the uncle told his lawyer before his passing that he wishes the unmerited gift be bestowed upon the niece and I hope it will turn her life around. The family aghast at the reading of the will storms out of the room. The niece is left sitting and sobbing with what appears to be tears of joy. She's been given something she didn't deserve, a brand new opportunity to prove herself and to put her life together. Within a year, she squandered the gift. And her life hasn't changed, and she's just back to her old ways. Her uncle's wealth granted her, proved powerless to change her heart. And her family lives on embittered against her and the uncle for the rest of their days. Regardless of the stories of what has been gifted without reason, regardless of what you may have that is invaluable to you, those gifts may have changed your life for now, but none can change your life and heart forever. Chapters 8 and 9, the second section of the second inspired letter that Paul writes to Corinth, part two of three sections that we're studying is about believers whose lives were changed for eternity because they were granted without reason a divine and miraculous in nature gift for which they were eternally grateful. The gift they were given that changed the way they lived was faith. The faith was gifted to them by divine grace, heavenly, undeserved favor bestowed upon their spiritually dead, destitute, and sin-sick selves. And it's the only resource gifted by God in Christ known to mankind that can restore a soul from death to life and change the way someone lives. The Corinthians that understood the miraculous gifting that had happened to them were forever thankful. 
And they demonstrated that thankfulness in a number of ways, but particularly in one way in these two chapters. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't outgive God? Well, this passage is a primary one where that familiar statement derives its meaning. You can't outgive an eternal gift. You can't pay it back because it's a gift. Because it's sourced in God's grace, something given to us we terribly don't deserve, and it's eternal in nature, and we live miraculously changed lives overwhelmed with those two divine realities for the remainder of our existence on earth. Our gratitude for that grace bestowed upon us is expressed to God and others in many ways. Those expressions of gratitude as we walk with God are so varied and never-ending because the expressions of God's grace are the same. Grace is the divine gift that just keeps on giving. And God's people, influenced by the same, do just that. They keep on giving. Why? For the cause of the gospel, which is, the sor- which is sourced in this rich, rich, immeasurably valued grace. As a matter of fact, you find this second section of this letter bookended by grace. Look with me at verse, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. There it is. Which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That is a great, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. That's the Greek word koinonia, where we get our English word fellowship. Favor of participation in the support of the saints And this, not as we had experienced, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work as well. So obviously, grace was operational in their lives from the moment that they were born again. And they're demonstrating the activity of that grace in their life and the giving of a particular gift. We're going to explain this over weeks together in chapters 8 and 9. So the grace that they were overwhelmed by lent itself to them being very gracious in this particular giving of this gift that, again, that we'll unpack over the next few weeks we're together. Now we're going to get chapter 9. Let's go to the end of this two-chapter section. And let's find again where this virtue, this gift of God is mentioned a second time. 
And he who supplies, let's look at verse 10, a little context. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. There's this thing that grace does, folks. It changes the way you live. It compels you to continually give because you've been gifted. And then as you give, as you've been gifted, spiritually and practically, it causes others who are recipients of that grace, not your gift, recipients of that grace to give thanks to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overthrowing through many thanksgivings to God because the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I really believe that last verse of this second section in verse 15 is in relationship to the gift of faith. Thanks be to God that you've been saved, right? Thanks be to God that you've been eternally gifted by his grace with faith. And it's that grace, like was mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, these bookends, right? It's that saving grace that compels us to live gracious lives that demonstrates the virtues of grace in, in many ways. In particular, in this overview of the second section this morning, we're going to highlight the particular way that a group of churches were an example to the Corinthian church on helping saints and their needs. Okay. So yes, the second section is about the grace of God immeasurably gifting us in salvation. And we, in constant acknowledgement of this, respond to the prompting of grace to give to the body of Christ for the cause of Christ which returns unceasing thanksgiving to God. So, what is the practical giving and gifting all sourced in God's grace all about in this second portion of this letter? Well, for over five years, the Apostle Paul has been gathering among churches planted and encountered a gift for the first church ever established in Jerusalem. The church that was responsible for the launching and the supporting of many churches in Jerusalem has now encountered great practical difficulty among its members in their day-to-day -day living. 
this recently found poverty was threatening the future existence of the church and its heartbeat to support gospel ministry. Harris, in his history of this gift, and the study of his history of this gift, points out eight reasons why this gift needed to be gathered and given. But highlight these eight reasons for you. And it's going to really help us, I think, with the overview of this two-chapter second section. First of all, it was certainly an expression of brotherly love. Paul, multiple passages in the New Testament, Romans 12, Romans 8, Romans 15, Galatians 6, you can find them all over. Express brotherly love through the spiritual skill underpinned by grace of giving. Secondly, it was a tangible expression of interdependence. We'll study here how the plan played out in just a little bit in the overview of this second section. But the plan demonstrates that it is God's will that the church interdependently work together to encourage each other so that the gospel can go forward. You find this in 1 Thessalonians 2 as well. Always learning, always supporting, always reaching, but together. The Bible does speak, I think, in principle of the autonomy of the local church, but we can never preach of the autonomy of the local church at the expense of the interdependent activity of like-minded churches for the gospel's sake. Chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, which we'll study in a few weeks, speaks of the need for the equality of provisions. So not just brotherly love and a tangible expression of interdependence, but an equality of provision. Having all things in common, this urgent desire to participate, to make sure that everyone's needs are met. Fourth, Harris points out that it effectively symbolizes the spiritual unity of both Jew and Gentile. Those of you that have known your Bibles and early church history well know that of the the division in the early church between Jew and Gentile for all kinds of reasons that we won't explain this morning. But one of Paul's motivations for gathering this gift from many of these gifts were given from Gentile people to support the impoverished Jews in Jerusalem. Therefore, trying to be an influencer, if you will. An influencer of unity. He also points out that it influenced the Jewish Christians who may have still been suspicious of Paul's Gentile mission to join him in that mission. If you think about that, I think you look at Acts 11, 2 and 3 to defend that particular fifth motive these Jewish Christians had been severely persecuted by Paul right and I'm sure that he's still facing some pushback from the Jewish Christians always feeling like he's got to prove in his life that he's changed and that he truly loves them even though he used to kill them it's going to take a lifetime to bear that character out doesn't it 
But Paul wants to be an influencer, not just to unity, but to mission. And he's willing to fight hard for that, and that's what grace is compelling his heart to do. Next, it dramatized in material terms the spiritual indebtedness of Gentile believers to the church of Jerusalem. There is somewhat of a spiritual reciprocity going on here. Listen, folks, don't forget that the church where it began. Don't forget that really you stand on the shoulders of this mother church, if you will. And there's a divine, a spiritual respect to to be reciprocated back to them. As we've already stated in, in interdependent fashion. Next, it marked the culmination of Paul's ministry in the eastern Mediterranean as he planned to turn westward westward after visiting Rome. This was an immense gospel missional goal for Paul. Jerusalem had been so instrumental in the gospel being spread across so many cities and regions. Now those churches and those cities, along with the regions, had an opportunity to support gospel progress from where it all began, therefore showing their desire for stability in missional progress, not only among them and from Jerusalem, but now having a significant part in the gospel moving forward to Spain, as Paul talks about in the latter chapter of Romans, and then into the Western world as they knew it. And at least seven times, at least seven times in Paul's New Testament writings, he mentions his poor testimony before he was saved. And a motivation is not just to counteract the way he persecuted them, but a motivation for gathering this offering was to show these people that he indeed had a changed life because of life-changing grace. So in addition to these motivations for gathering the offering among the churches, Paul did have some human misgivings about it and how it would be received. And you can read those misgivings in Romans 15, verses 30 to 33. But it was gratefully received, as Luke recorded in Acts 21, 17. And in addition to the grace-inspired motivations for gathering this gift for the impoverished Jews in the church in Jerusalem were able to be blessed by the grace-motivated approach to the giving and the gathering of the gift. The recipients were the Hebrew Christians at Jerusalem who may have referred to themselves as the poor. Now, poor in this context was someone who was exclusively and completely dependent on God alone for their provision. The poor today, in our time, is, are defined a little differently. But in the first century, at this particular audience, they knew what poor meant, and they knew who the poor were. So several factors had accounted for the poverty of the church, the Jewish church, the Jews in the church at Jerusalem. 
And I want to highlight those for you because I think they're important to understand in the overview of the second section. After these Jews had been converted, they would have suffered a ton of persecution from their Jewish family members and communities. They would have lost their jobs having left Judaism to pursue Christ. They would have lost their inheritances. If this is a widow and she had a living son who would have been in the Jewish culture, the one responsible for her care. She would have lost that relationship with that son who was responsible for that care. Knowing spiritually, truly, like 1 Timothy 5 says, she was a widow indeed. Many were left, including the widows, exclusively depending on God for their daily provision. Many of us have experienced that in our lives. Not so much as these people, but you know. You've been in a place where only God could help you. And in this situation, God did for the Jerusalem poor. He did it by his grace, operating through his people to care for a need because they realized they could really never outgive God because his grace just keeps on giving. I would say also that the experiment of community gathering for the needy in Acts 2, 44 and 45 and Acts 4, 32, 34 and 35 undoubtedly would have aggravated though it did not cause their poverty. So you've got these people in the Jerusalem community that have been spiritually abandoned and that's hurting them but yet they're still giving out of their need to the church that's struggling among them in their own city, in their own local assembly. 8046, there's a tremendous famine going on in the area. Acts 11, 27 to 30. Persistent food shortages in Palestine because of maybe overpopulation culminated in the famine of this time in the time of Emperor Claudius. A fourth reason for their impoverished state, well, as the mother church of Christendom, Harris states that the Jerusalem church was obliged to support a proportionately large number of teachers, and probably to provide hospitality for frequent Christian visitors to the city of Jerusalem. He also states that Jews in Palestine were subject to a crippling twofold taxation. Now we all can bear witness to this, right? Twofold taxation both of the Jewish system and of the Roman system. So, in addition to the well-motivated approach, it's a blessing to know that it was also a well-planned approach. And the planning demonstrates that the grace compels the follow-through of the gathering of this gift as well. 
Acts chapter 20 and verse 4 contains a list of the appointed delegates from certain Gentile churches who were Paul's traveling companions on his final visit to Rome when he's delivering the collection. Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus represented the Macedonian churches. Gaius and perhaps Timothy were delegates from Galatia. Tychicus and Trophimus traveled on behalf of Asia. And we know Asia, uh, Achaia, excuse me, contributed to the offerings as well, according to Romans 15, 26 and 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. God's grace supported not just the motivation, but the methodology, the planning of these grace-influenced people to work together interdependently to care for the church why? Why? Well, the why is found for the same rationale that we studied in 2 Corinthians 7. Why highlight the virtues of Christian relationship like we did for a few weeks? Was it just so that everyone could get along? Or was it that everyone would get along and work together under the cause. Remember, grace changes your life when you come to know Jesus personally. Grace places you into a community of people who have been individually influenced by the same grace. And those lives and those relationships are worth maintenancing so that you can work together for the grace of God that is also going to be gifted to people who have yet to come to know Christ. Amen. So the worst, the relationships are worth fighting for. And now the second section, the working together to make sure people are cared for in an interdependent fashion is necessary so that we can all stand accountable to God for the eternal why question. Why did you give anyway? Because remember, this is never, giving is never a performance-based reality in any grace-changed soul or church. Amen. Remember, you can't outgive God because grace just keeps on giving and we're compelled by grace to live the life of Christ who is God's gift to us forever. Acts 20, verse 35, as we conclude this morning. There is only one saying of Christ mentioned outside the Gospels. And we find it here, as Paul concludes his address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And everything I showed you, Luke writes... That by working hard in this way, you must help the weak. And always remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. It's the only statement of Jesus' words outside the Gospels mentioned in the whole New Testament. I find that fascinating. 
when we understand the nature of God, the nature of his grace, and its influence upon our lives personally and then corporately for all kinds of reasons. That's it. It is more blessed to give than to get. It's the nature of God to give, isn't it? Rarely is the attribute of God's goodness, his giving, attributed to him. There's a reason for that, I think. We have to understand that his giving, the nature of his cause to give, is all sourced in his grace. Grace is a gift to us of unmerited favor. We're the black sheep, niece and nephews in the room that were undeserving apart from grace. But that saving favor changed us and it's all sourced in God who is eternal. We see this in creation week, don't we? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 30 and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life I have given every green plant for food God just is a giver (laughs) not just savingly but practically and even for the animals James chapter 1 And verse 17 reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift has a source. And who's the source? The Father of lights. The Father of all creation. We're so thankful for those created blessings that he gives us that are sourced in his omnipotence for sure but we're most thankful for his saving gift of his grace and God just gives doesn't he for God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life for by grace you are saved and that not of yourselves Faith is a gift. Grace to us, not of your own works, lest any man should boast or brag. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Lord Jesus departs from this earth. He announces it and he prophesies of the coming of the Holy Spirit as if he himself (laughs) were not enough. And he is. To his hurting disciples, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. 
Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7, not only in creation and not only in salvation, not only in our position in Christ, God gives gifts to the church, doesn't he, right? But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God just keeps giving. Grace never stops giving salvifically and practically. And so his people, influenced by grace, salvifically, in salvation, will also never be able to stop giving. The practical needs of the church for the why of the church. So the church can be strong within, so it can be strong in gospel outreach without. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, be good unto all men, but especially, who? The household of faith. And that's right on the tails of the importance of the church ministering to the needs of the Bible teachers in the church. So there can be spiritual nourishment because there's practical nourishment. So there can be gospel outreach. The why is really the ultimate motivation because the why is all about grace as our personal salvations are all about grace. Why did Christ live a virtuous life among those he related with? Why did Christ feed the poor? Why did he heal the sick? Why did he exercise the possessed? Why did he raise the dead? Because he was the greatest rabbi philanthropist of all time? No, it was Mark 10, 45. He came to serve, not to be served, so he could live out his why, to give his life a ransom for many. And so as we live with the goal of Christ-likeness, shouldn't we be doing the same? By his grace who is Christ, we are compelled to live out the same why as Christ. What an amazing privilege. What an honor. What a reason to be alive. It's the greatest reason to be alive. Because that's the life that the greatest ever lived did all those things, even gave cups of cold water. He encouraged us to do the same thing in his name. Why do you live virtually, virtuously among the faithful? And why do you live virtuously among those who are on the outside, those who don't know Jesus yet? We do so because we're overwhelmed by the overwhelming grace of God in Christ. We we do the divine practical things so that we can support and underpin the gospel outreach goals. And grace supports it all. So truly, we can never outgive God if it's always about the why of Christ.
There's a hymn from 1787. It's called, Great God, Tis From Thy Sovereign Grace. And the first few lines read like this. Great God, tis from thy sovereign grace that all my blessings flow. Whate'er I am or do, possess I to thy mercy owe. Everything that we are, everything that we have, you would all agree. I know you would say it's sourced in God's unmerited favor. Right? So our lives are to be lived by that same grace for the same reason why Jesus lived. So this, I said last week that this, the second portion really isn't primarily about giving. It's going to be about the collection of a gift. It's going to be about the delivery of the gift. But so many times, this, these two chapters are pulled out of their context, and it, come, it becomes exclusively about just giving. When you pull something out of its context and you make it something about what it's truly not within its context, what you're doing is you're laying re- obligation and responsibility upon God's people that's merely performance-driven. Who gives what? How much are you giving? How planned are you in it? This, that, and the other. Classes on giving. Classes on this. Classes on that. And you know what? I suppose all those might be fine. But it's not fine if you teach all of that without teaching the why of why we're doing it. But then teaching the ability to do this is sourced in someone completely other than you or us. That leaves you individually as you draw the circle around yourself this morning, not you and your wife, not you and your child, not you and your whoever you're with, as you draw the circle around yourself, your giving will be proportional to how amazed you are by what you know about the infinite value of grace and how it's changed your life. And then you're scheduling your life as much as you can to give to the cause of why Christ came anyway. You can't put a value on grace, can you? You can't outgive grace, can you? Right? So you will give proportionate to how amazed you are by the grace that ransomed your sin-sick soul from an eternal hell. So don't look at your, your shoulder what someone else gives or ask someone else what they give. No. Draw the circle around yourself. And you'll know by how much you give for gospel cause is only appropriate as you are amazed by grace and how it changed you and the opportunity to support the mission that God's placed before you and placed before us. Okay. 
That's why I believe, again, as we started out, this second portion is bookended by paying attention to the grace of God. So for us, going forward from this place this morning, how about we just pray over that? Let's just pray about how amazed or unamazed we are by the grace of God in our lives throughout this week. And as we go into the next couple months studying through these two chapters, and it's going to take a couple months. I got a couple of weddings I got to attend in June. It's going to take a couple months, right? So let's just think about being overwhelmed once again, a renewed overwhelm, overwhelming by grace. And maybe let grace influence how you give and not just start with your budget. Because it's all about a cause. It's not just about the gift. So it's really going to be a test of what your passion is for the cause. Not just the caring for one another. Not just the relations with one another. We relate well for the cause. We care for each other well so we can live our why. And it's all by God's grace. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so thankful. We're humbled by being overwhelmed by your grace as unworthy creatures, sin-sick creatures who needed to be saved, who needed to be rescued. Great God, tis from thy sovereign grace that all our blessings flow, spiritually and practically. Our desire is to use those blessings for the eternal why of Christ, the spread of his gospel, infinitely given so much to us and your grace compels us to give so much back to you as finite creations for the cause of the spread of the gospel so help us Lord to continue to maintain these virtues of Christian relationship and help us Lord to be overwhelmed by your grace throughout this week before we dive into this passage again and may we approach this second section, these, these next two chapters, with what I trust to be a renewed, refreshed, within context approach. So that we, many as one, can pursue the care for the church under the spread of the gospel as effectually and effectively as we possibly can until we see Jesus in the clouds. In his name we pray, amen.